victorious, holy, righteous, majestic, perfect, dwelling in unapproachable light that no light can outshine. You are our God. Jesus Christ, you are our King. I pray right now we be so humbled in your presence that those would not just be words on a screen, but as we think about who you are, your attributes, as we think about your nature, as we think about the work that you have accomplished for us on the cross, on our behalf, coming to earth, fully God, yet fully man, living a perfect life and going to the cross to pay the penalty for our sin that separates us from you so that all who repent of that sin and confess you as their Lord and Savior would be saved for eternity because you are risen from the dead and you are sitting on the throne high and lifted up. May you be high and lifted up in our hearts today, Jesus Christ, the cornerstone of this church, the head of this church, the authority of this church. What you say goes. You have your way in this place right now. And I pray that right now, whatever distractions are on the hearts of any of people here today, God, we would willingly and eagerly just cast those on you right now, saying, Jesus, I can't handle this, take it. Jesus, I'm distracted by this, take it. You say, cast your anxieties on you because you care for me. Holy Spirit, please come and do a freeing work in this place. Humble our hearts to listen. Humble our hearts to receive and to not walk in pride and reject what you want to say. Fill my mouth, Holy Spirit, say what you want to say. In Jesus' name we pray, church, if you agree, say amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning, church. It is a blessing by the grace of our Lord to be back into the house of the Lord with you all. Let's open up our Bibles to Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3, verses 9 to 15, the last seven chapters in the book of Titus. For those of you who do not have a copy of God's Word, just put your hand up right now. Our ushers are coming forward. We would love to put one in your hand so you can follow along with where we're headed today. Titus chapter 3, verses 9 to 15, and it's on page 580 in those Bibles that are being handed out right now. Well, today we finish our nine-week series on the book of Titus entitled God's Heart for the Church. And the whole focus of this series, the whole focus as to why the book of Titus was even written was to give us the blueprint, to answer the question of what is the blueprint God has given for what a healthy and faithful church, what healthy believers are to look like. Remember, healthy believers mean a healthy church. Healthy church means healthy believers. So let's just do a bit of a recap, a series recap, if you will, of what this blueprint looks like. I was so blessed by this. Get your pens ready. You're going to want to take a lot of notes today on this, okay? So what is the blueprint God has given us so far leading up to these last seven verses of what a healthy church is and the church that he promises to bless? Number one, 
A healthy church lives on mission. We looked at that in verses, chapter one, verses one to three. It lives on mission for the mandate Christ has given us to make disciples as his ambassadors, but also living out our mission in our identity of who we are in Christ as his children. Next, a healthy church has godly leadership. This was verses four to nine. Godly leadership. This is uh, leadership that models the character and standards of godliness for the flock and holds firm to the word of God and doesn't compromise on that. Now remember, those standards that God has set out are not just for the leadership of the church. It's not like we can have a free pass and say, well, I'm not a leader, so I can just do what I want. Those are the standards we are all called to, but leaders are called to model those. Next, we saw a healthy church also upholds doctrinal purity. A healthy church contends for the faith. And we saw that in verses 10 to 16, and we'll expand on that more today. Upholds doctrinal purity, and it guards the church against drift. It guards the church against picking and choosing parts of God's word that you want to say and not saying the whole counsel of God, but also not twisting scripture to mean it what you want to mean. Upholds doctrinal purity, contending for the faith. Next, healthy church pursues lifestyles of sound doctrine. Remember, doctrine never just keeps us at information. True doctrine always moves us to transformation because it is the living and active word. So from the true doctrine that is being upheld, that is being preached, God's people pursue lifestyles of sound doctrine. Next, the healthy church is founded on the gospel. It lives in the power of the gospel and it upholds the proclamation of the true gospel. The gospel is the cornerstone, the foundation, Jesus Christ himself, and we do not waver from it. Number six, the healthy church is ready for good works. Remember, we're called to be zealous for good works, ready for good works, and devoted to good works. We'll pick up on that today. And then the lastly, lastly, what we saw is a healthy church lives a life of gospel devotion. Remember, our status in Christ, when we remember what God has done for us through Jesus Christ, our status in Christ fuels our witness for Christ. When we remember that our identity is secure, that we are God's possession, that we are adopted by God as his children, as his heirs, that fuels boldness in our witness, fearlessness in our witness, because we are firmly grounded in our status in him. And so there's the blueprint that God has given for the church thus far. And today, Paul sums up this letter and gives the final word on how the church must function. Get this, must function if it is to be effective in evangelism and in being a faithful witness for Christ. You can't take all of this and miss this piece. It's like Paul doesn't, one thing you, you may have been getting by now, Paul does not like coast into the end of the letter. Like it's like full pedal to the metal, let's keep it going. If you're going to say the last thing you're going to say to someone, or you're going to make it one of the most important things that you have to say. Right? And so here's Paul gunning it right to the end of the book. And he said, why is this so important? Why does Paul circle back to what this faithful witness is to look like? Well, because just like in the first century church, today we see a major, increasingly disastrous problem in the church. And it is this. There is an increasingly distorted view on what it means for the church to be a faithful witness to our culture. 
an increasingly distorted view on what it means for the church to be a faithful witness to our culture. What do you mean by that? Here, today, and I just, in our pre-service prayer with our leadership team, I just read an article that emphasized this. There is an increasing number of churches that, think, that are thinking faithfulness in reaching the culture means compromising reverence to God per, to pursue relevance to the culture. There's an increasing amount of this that if we're going to be a faithful witness, if people are going to come into the church, that we have to forego the reverence of God and pursue relevance with the culture. What does this look like? They water down the teaching. Where does sound doctrine go? It's the first thing to go. God's holiness gets minimized. The purity that he expects as the king and the head of this church gets compromised. To pursue rel- That's the only place relevance can take you. We see this increasingly a compromise by faithfulness is increasingly measured by man's desires and not God's desires for his church. Our strategies, our marketing, our brand, maybe that'll get people in the door. And we focus on the big three B's, buildings, budgets, and bodies, Those are strategies of man, loved ones. God will provide all that he needs, all that we need from him, from his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. And the result of this, loved ones, just look around. The church is increasingly divided. Increasingly divided and its witness is increasingly compromised to the culture around it. So we need to get back, and Paul circles us back one more time to answer the question, what does God say faithfulness is to look like in and through his church? Not what man says, not what culture says. What does God say faithfulness is to look like? Because let's be honest, our efforts, just look around loved ones, they're not working. They're not working. So what does God say? Well, here in our text today, we see two foundational truths the church must stand on. We cannot compromise on this and still think we're going to be faithful. We must stand on these two uncompromising truths if we are to fulfill our mission in being a faithful witness for Christ no matter what's happening, irregardless of what's happening in the culture around us. All right, let's stand and honor the authority of God's word and we're going to read verses 9 to 15, Titus chapter 3, 9 to 15. Paul finishes by saying this, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is condemned, self-condemned. Verse 12, when I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing, and let our people learn to devote themselves to good works, so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you. All And all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. You may be seated. 
Well, the first foundational truth we see here that we must stand on is to be a faithful witness for Christ. The church must be a unified witness in Christ and confront division. The church must be a unified witness in Christ and confront division. And the question that we are confronted with by by this first section of the text is this. A faithful witness is a unified witness. Am I on guard against division? Am I on guard against division? Now, look at verses 9 to 11 again. Paul addresses this head on. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they're unprofitable and worthless. And as for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. Let's make sure we remember our context here one last time. 62 to 64 AD, first century. The Apostle Paul, he's been planting churches on the island of Crete with his son in the faith, Timothy. There's Crete right there, southern Greece. You see it right there and then blown up at the top of the page, about 160 miles across only. And he's planting them with his son in the faith, Titus. And now these churches are two to three years old. And the church right now, Paul is writing a letter of Titus because the church right now is at a tipping point. It's at a tipping point. It could go either way because the church is not grounded in sound doctrine. And as such, the church is at risk of being divided because of false teaching that is rising up and teachers promoting the immoral lifestyle that was compromising the faithful evangelistic witness of the church to the culture around it. So there's false teaching going on and then the immoral lives of these false teachers were impacting the believers and in compromising increasingly their witness to the culture around them. And so Paul returns to instructing them on how to confront the false teachers that were causing this division in order to why? Protect the unity of the church to ultimately see the church established as a faithful and fruitful witness for Christ. Now remember, Paul already instructed them in this in verses 10 to 16, and now he's going to expand on it, okay? He's going to expand on this. Chapter 1, verses 10 to 16, in case you're looking that up, all right? And he gives two ways to confront the division. Look at verse 9. If you're going to confront the division and uphold a unified witness, you must, number one, avoid false teaching. Look at verse 9. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. The word avoid there doesn't mean, well, I'll kind of play around with it. And then if it gets to a part that I'm not so fan of, then I'll avoid it. No, 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 no. Here's the strength of this imperative that Paul is saying here. Avoid means this, to shun, to stand far away from. Do not entertain false teaching. Let me say it again, loved ones. Do not entertain false teaching. The devil is not stupid. He is looking to sow dissension, deception, and destruction in the church all the time. You do not entertain false teaching. The way there, the, the words goes on to say here, what are we to avoid? Foolish controversies. What's the word foolish mean? It means empty, meaningless, and useless. Avoid it. The controversies, what are those? Meaningless debates or speculations, but not truth. 
avoid it. Avoid genealogies. Avoid dissension and quarrels. What are these? These arguments or debates for the sake of arguing, not about the truth, but about worthless stuff. False teachers aren't interested in the truth. So they're just going to debate and they're going to try to mess you up on your words and they're going to sow little seeds of God's truth but then take them way out of context and misapply them, give you just enough. Listen, if Satan tried that with Jesus, he's going to try it with us too. Just give enough of scripture. He tried with Adam and Eve. He tried it with Jesus. He'll try it with us. Just a little bit believable. Don't entertain it. Don't engage in worthless speculations about what? It says about the law. Just read, just bring it out of the text. The law. What law is he talking about? The Mosaic law. Remember, the false teachers in the first century, they were called Judaizers. Okay? They were called Judaizers, and they taught this, that Jesus plus human effort equals salvation. God's grace plus human effort equals salvation. Why? Because they were bent on believing that In addition to Jesus, you needed to uphold the ritualistic ceremonial purity of the Mosaic law. And you needed to achieve ritual purity if you were going to be saved, especially in regards to circumcision. But the problem, the false teaching is this. Just look at last week. Why do you think Paul just took time to unpack in verses 3 to 8 the beautiful doctrine of justification and salvation? Because this is what the false teaching contradicts. It denies the doctrine of justification and salvation by grace alone through faith alone in Jesus. All right? That's why Paul spent all that time in those first, the previous six verses unpacking that. See, the church, Paul is saying to Titus, Paul is saying to us today, the church is not to give an on-ramp or platform for false teachers to promote their deceptive agenda. You don't entertain it. So often we think, I'm strong enough to handle it. Really? You're going up against a demonic, satanic spirit that knows your very weakness. Who are you or I to think we're strong enough to listen to that and not be impacted? He says, you avoid that. You shun that. You do not give it an on-ramp into the church. You do not give it an on-ramp into your small groups. You do not give it an on-ramp in your conversations. One commentator put it this way. These kinds of persons, these false teachers, and those who live the lifestyle of false doctrine are not to be debated. They are not to be debated, but to be denounced and dismissed. Dealing with aberrant theology is not the time for dialogue. Let me say it again. Dealing with aberrant theology is not the time for dialogue. It is the time for action. Action that is quick and swift. A little leaven ruins the whole batch. Of dough. It's about as serious as it gets, loved ones. See, how do we know? Well, remember from chapter 1, verse 11, where it says entire households were being overturned by the false teaching? 
Church is overturned. Family's overturned. Life's overturned. You don't play with that stuff. You're dealing against a force apart from Jesus Christ you have no power against. Let's not play the dialogue game with that. And why? Why is Paul so strong on this? Look at verse 9. Just keep reading the text. For, back half of verse 9, for they are unprofitable and worthless. That means this. Nothing good comes from their teaching. Nothing good. It is absolutely, the teaching of false teachers is absolutely useless for salvation, for godly living, and it is ineffective for any true evangelism. Let me say it again. The teaching of false teachers is absolutely worthless and does nothing to lead people to salvation, godly living, and it is completely ineffective for evangelism. Why? Because if it's not sound doctrine being proclaimed, it's not sound evangelism. Who do you think you're leading them to? Are you leading them to the true savior? Not when it's false doctrine you're not. You're leading them to this some idea of a savior that you think you can, you can package and it's going to be really good for them. Not the true God. If it's not sound doctrine, it's not sound evangelism. Let me just boil all that down. Jesus plus anything equals nothing. Justification by grace alone through faith alone. So I could sum that up, these first three, say this, the church was at risk of not only being deceived, but also distracted from evangelism by wasting time embroiled in worthless controversy and debate. Now let me clarify one thing. You say, well, wait a sec, I got a real passion for apologetics. Yeah, bro, so do I, praise the Lord. We're not talking about healthy debates here. We're talking about dealing with an agenda of a false teacher who's not interested in debating with you. They're interested in deceiving you and bringing you into their faction. I'm all for apologetic debates. Love it. If someone truly wants to ask questions and learn, absolutely praise the Lord. Do not be deceived. Do not be deceived, though, loved ones. No agenda other than to know the truth, that's a good debate. See, in the goal of avoiding, you may say, well, wait a second, this is really harsh. Like, why would Paul say this? This is harsh for the church. Isn't church supposed to be a place of love and all that? Yeah, we'll get to that in a little bit. But the goal of avoiding them is to help the false teachers. Here's the loving piece. The goal of avoiding false teaching is to help the teachers see that what they're teaching is wrong. What they are teaching is wrong and they are sinning by it. The goal of avoidance is never to wreck them, it is to restore them. Like, wait a sec, I'm not getting a platform in this church to spew a false gospel. Maybe I need to rethink this. Is what I'm believing really true? I'm not teaching those kids in Hope Kids. Maybe I need to rethink this. Something's off. It's always restorative and it protects the church 
from giving them a platform. You have my word. I'm going to be out of the pulpit for a couple weeks here coming up, but I will tell you this. Every single man that will take this pulpit in the next few weeks are completely zealous and devoted for sound doctrine in God's church. You have my word. You have the word of our elder board before God. God help us, because if you don't, I shouldn't be here. We're called to protect the church. And the first step is avoidance of false teaching. Secondly, what does Paul say? Don't just avoid false teaching. What does he say? Confront false teachers. How are we to confront a false teacher? Wait a second. We're not debating. No, we're called to confront them this way. Look at 10 and 11. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self Condemned. See, Paul now instructs the church that they are not just to avoid false teaching, but they are to confront false teachers. Why? Because here's why. You see it right in the text. They stir up division. What does that mean? It means this. Those who are teaching and or living, notice this, not just teaching it with their mouths, but living in doctrinal and immoral error living lifestyles of immorality against God's word. And they are, get this, public, habitual, and lacking repentance, just flaunting their sinful lifestyle in front of the rest of the church. And here's the danger, because they claim to be followers of Christ. That's the danger. And so here they are. The church is not to be a place of some sin hunt. It's not like, let's look under the rock and I'm going to put cameras. Oh, you were on that parking lot. No. We're talking about habitual, public, open, and lacking repentance sin in their life. That's just ongoing. Whether it's teaching or a sinful lifestyle that's just not being checked, they're not repenting of that not coming under the authority of God's word. Because here's the thing, all of us are gonna sin. Paul's not talking about perfection here. We're all gonna sin. But the question is, what do you do when you're confronted with it? Do you just carry on? No, I don't need to. I don't need to change. I'm gonna do things my way. Be very careful, loved ones. We're not spying for sin. And, they, and these, false people, these false teachers who stir up division by their lives and in their lips, they tell others their teaching or they live it out in front of others in their opinion to try to win them over, as I said, to, to divide the church, to justify their actions and to create these little factions. And as I said, they often try to use just enough scripture to convince you. Well, it's God's grace I'm living under. We'll get to that in a little bit. And we'll see what sound doctrine of God's grace really is. Because God's grace, hey loved ones, will never coddle your sin. God's grace always lovingly will confront your sin. And you say, how? Jesus confronted the sin of the world in love when he came and died for you and me. God's grace is never an excuse to sin. Be very careful. Be very careful. And so Paul, he tells the church how to deal with them. Look, 10b, after the, as for the person who stirs up division, after warning him once, he says they are to be warned. And this confrontation has three parts. Number one, warning number one. 
What does the word warning there mean? It's not like, hey, you're living in sin. Stop. No. Okay? What he's talking about here is this. When we warn someone, it means to rebuke or correct in love and in truth. Now, here's the thing. Not with your opinion. Well, I think you should do it this way. No. But from the solid teaching and evidence from God's word. You lovingly correct. You see a brother or sister walking in this open, unrepentant sin, and you say, I love you too much. to let, Like, think about this. Think about this. If you saw a young kid, or anyone, I'll just use a personal example. If I saw one of my boys headed towards a cliff, just running towards a cliff, not knowing that he's going to hit the end real soon, and be dead when he falls, would you not do all you can to grab him before he gets there? You warn him. That would be a gracious thing to do, to grab my son. Do you not think? You warn them. You say, what you're doing, I'm seeing this, but God's word says this. Do you see it? You warn them in love to stop spreading that teaching or living in that ungodly way. See, this is why, loved ones, we must be grounded in sound doctrine. Why? It has to fuel everything because you can't correct something when you don't know how to correct it, when you don't know what God's word says about it. You're going on your opinion. That's not going to last. They need to see the authority of God over them and what he says to that situation. This is why we need to be grounded in the sound doctrine. And this is why, loved ones, do you notice this? The enemy works so hard to keep you and I from contending for the faith and growing in sound doctrine. Go to church if you have nothing better to do on a weekend. Don't go to small group. Do other things. Don't bother going to prayer night. Just do other things. These are all the means of grace God has given us to grow in sound doctrine together. This is why the enemy works so hard. And then secondly, so here's the first part of confrontation. Warn him once, and then just keep reading the text. After warning him once, and then twice. Here's the second thing. And after, you warn them twice, and then you give them. Here's the thing with all of this. After giving, you warn this person, and then after giving them ample time to demonstrate repentance, this is so important. It's not like, okay, I'm going to warn you once. They're like, no. And they're like, I'm going to warn you. T- oh, okay, you're done. No. Mm-mm. It's like you warn them once. This is what God's word say. Take that, pray about that. And g- after giving them ample time, I don't know, there's no set time frame for that. You're just doing life with them. Let's hold, walk in accountability on this. And after giving them time and the opportunity to repent, if they don't listen the first time, they are to be warned and rebuked again. Verse 10b, warn them again a second time. And then they are given more time to repent and to submit to the authority of God through his word. Here it is, loved one. I still see it going on. Here, here's what God's word has to say. Do you remember? How's it going? And, and if they're continuing in that process, we need to go to step three. But I have to re- really reemphasize this here. The goal of confrontation is restorative and redemptive. You and I are not called to be doctrinal bullies. The goal 
of church discipline, the goal of biblical confrontation is always restorative and redemptive. And if at any point, here, know this, if at any point in that process, warning one, warning two, if at any point in that process, that person gives evidence of genuine repentance, turning from sin, turning toward God. I see what God's word says. I didn't even see that. Thank you. If at any point in that process, there's genuine repentance, there's evidence of it, the process of discipline stops and the ministry of restoration begins. At any point. If there's even a hint of genuine repentance. This is why Galatians 6.2 says this, in the context of this very thing, bear one another's burdens and fulfill the law of Christ. It's not like you're going to a person and being like, okay, I'm just gonna show you what you're doing and then I'm leaving you on your own. No, 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 no. You come alongside them to help. Can I help you? Can I arrange for other living arrangements for you? Can I do this? Can I add some accountability? So you're not, in your life, can I walk alongside you to love you well? And you're not leaving them on their own. You're caring for them. You're loving them. You're walking with them practically. But, stage three, if they are still choosing to walk in sin in spite of this after two warnings and they refuse to submit to God's word and they are threatening the unity and purity of the church by refusing to repent after multiple warnings from the congregations and leaders. Remember, the book of Titus was written to the whole church. It wasn't just written to pastors. This is body life. We are called to walk together in agreement and watch out for each other and love each other that way. But if they continue to walk in unrepentance, the church is to have nothing more to do with them. What does that mean? Here's what that Greek statement means. Removed or excluded from the church community. Remember, these are people that are claiming the name of Jesus Christ. Think about the impact of this. If you have someone who's claiming to be a follower of Christ and yet walking in unrepentant sin, who's to say not more believers will look and say, well, they're claiming Christ and they're living like that, so I can live like that too. There's that impact of false teaching on the church. They are to be excluded from the church, the Christian community. Why? Because they have shown themselves, verse 10, to be warped and sinful. What does that mean? Hardened in heart to the gospel. Hardened in heart to God. Walking in habitual, unrepentant sin. Refusing to submit to God's authority. And all while bringing judgment on themselves through self-condemnation. They need to see the severity of their sin before the Lord. And all this while professing the name of Christ. It's a whole other thing. If a professing non-believer comes in to church... Here they got, but it's a totally different ballgame when you look at someone who's claiming the name of Christ and how we're called to deal with them. Now, this whole process of verses 9 to 11, it picks up on what Jesus said in Matthew 18 about what to do if our brother sins against you. Let's hear the word of our king. You'll see it on the screen. Jesus, Jesus clarifies this process for us even more when he says this. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. There's warning one. Go and tell him. Don't go to your neighbor. Don't go to so-and-so, so-and-so. You go to the person. You're not gossiping about it. You're going to that person. You're telling him, this is your sin. This is what we see in God's word. It's not, here's my opinion on what I think you should do. It's, here's the loving correction from God's word. If he listens to you, there it is. If he repents, you've gained your brother. Gain him back. Warning two, verse 16. But if he does not listen, take one or two 
others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Say, we love you and we see you walking this. Come back. Don't keep going down that. Don't keep heading toward the cliff. We love you. We're willing to care for you and bear that burden with you and come alongside you. But if he refuses to listen to them, step three, tell it to the church. What is that? Your church elders, your church pastor. Tell it to the church. And then we will lovingly confront that person. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, here it is, let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. What's the implication there? A non-believer. They need to be out of the Christian community that they are not proclaiming the name of Christ and justifying false teaching within it. Remember, the goal is they would see the seriousness of their sin and turn to God in repentance. We are not here. The church of Jesus Christ is not here to make a mockery of God's holiness because there's a fear of man. And as your elders, as your pastor, you are loved so much by us and we love you enough to confront you when it gets to that point, if it does. We are coming to confront you on this because we love you, not to wreck you, but to restore you. The purity of the church is at stake. God's holiness is at stake. And now look around today, loved ones. Perhaps no area in the life of the church is more neglected than the faithful exercising of church discipline. The majority of churches increasingly live in the fear of offending anyone but God. We live in a fear of offending anyone but God. And the result is the fear of man trumps the fear of God in the congregants and leaders alike. Sin is allowed to remain unchecked and rampant. Purity is minimized. Pride is emphasized. Grace gets distorted to mean allowing sin instead of lovingly confronting the sin and calling on the power of God's grace to lead towards transformation. True grace lovingly confronts. It never coddles sin. How many times have we heard, oh, you just need to have more grace? For what? Grace to love you? Yes. Grace to love you biblically like Jesus calls grace? Yes. Grace to coddle your sin and make excuses for it? No. That is not true grace. That is not God's grace, loved ones. And the, because the result is this, a divided church and an unfaithful witness. And some of you, maybe this is a brand new teaching for you. We don't hear it very much in the church. I was trying to remember that this week with my wife now. I'm like, when's the last time we heard a sermon on church discipline? You say, well, that's so unloving. How is that even loving? That's like harsh. Here's why. Here's why this is absolutely crucial. Write this down. Because if you remove church discipline from the church, you remove the exaltation of Christ from his church. I will say it again. If you remove church discipline from the church, you remove the exaltation of Christ from his church. Why? Why? Because instead of exalting Christ, you begin to exalt sin. Instead of exalting Christ's reputation, you begin to exalt your own. And instead of exalting Christ's holiness, 
you exalt flagrant disobedience. Is that a faithful witness? See, I love how Danny Aiken put this. You'll see it on the screen. The good work, notice it's a good work, of church discipline will bear the fruit, will bear the fruit of the glory of God. Love for the sinner. See, it's all done in love. It's not, you're not a bully, you're not, it's patient, gentle pursuit. Restoration of the wayward, purity of the church, protection of the fellowship, and witness to the world. We testify to God, one another, and the world that holiness and purity matter. It's the only thing that makes us distinct. We proclaim through biblical discipline that love cares and love confronts. It can be tender, but sometimes must also be tough. What it cannot do, what love cannot do, is stand by and do nothing when one of the community is ensnared by sin. They're headed towards the cliff. They're going to train wreck their life, their family. This is why Proverbs 27, 5, and 6, these ones may be like hard to swallow. They are for me when I read them. But loved ones, be encouraged with this. It says, better is an open rebuke than hidden love. And faithful are the wounds of a friend. If you have a man or a woman willing to come alongside you and say, hey, I love you, this is what I see happening. This is what God's word says. Can we talk through this, please? That's a friend you want to keep. That's a faithful friend. That is a loving friend. It is not loving. It's cruel to let sin ensnare a person and you and I sit by and do nothing. You keep those friends. They love you. A faithful witness is a unified witness. Are you guarding against division? What's your next step? Here's some examples. Personally, are we repenting of known sin? As the Lord reveals things in our lives, are we repenting of that? To say, yeah, this is where I am walking sin. We're not going to make excuses for this. Are we living at peace with others? Are we, here's, here's a big one. Are we inviting and submitting to godly accountability in our lives. I'm not talking about, yeah, I have accountability, but we just talk about the hockey game. No, no, no. I'm talking about men and women in your life that you allow to ask the tough questions. Not for some sin hunt, but to love you and bear the burdens with you because the enemy thrives in isolation. Do we have men and women who can speak into our lives and are we inviting that? That's why I love visiting our small groups and I get into accountability time and I see this and it's so beautiful and it's so life-giving and it's so freeing when brothers and sisters come alongside and they lay hands and they pray and they walk together in agreement and there's unity and repentance. It's just so beautiful. Are we inviting that and submitting to it? It's really hard to see the full picture from the inside of the frame. We need outside eyes. Are we submitting to the spiritual authorities God has put over us? Are we lovingly and patiently confronting false or non-biblical teaching opinions or lifestyles so that we can uphold faithfully the authority of God and the purity, holiness, and unity of God's church and its witness to the world? See, to be a faithful witness, the church must be a unified witness. And from this, 
This is where fruitfulness comes from. It is called to be a fruitful witness through Christ. Because don't forget, how do you know a church that has God's blessing? It's a unified church. Why? Psalm 133, God says how good and pleasing it is when brothers dwell together in unity. Why? Verse three, for there the blessing of the Lord is commanded. Unity is a big deal to the king. It's his bride. He's purifying to meet her very soon. He does not want her tarnished. So from a a unified witness, we then move. A faithful witness is a fruitful witness through Christ. Learn devotion. Learn devotion. Look at verses 12 to 15. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing, and let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. Verse 15, all who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. The question we are confronted by this last section of text is this. Here we go. Final 100 meters, loved ones. Ready, ready? Here we go. Final 100 meters. A faithful witness is a devoted witness. Am I devoted to good works? There's the thrust of the book. Am I devoted to good works? Verses 12 to 15, Paul now gives his final instructions to Titus, which focus on the practical needs that he had, but also, notice this, the needs of the missions team that he had trained up and was mobilizing to send out. Not just Paul's personal needs, the needs of the missionaries he's about to send out. And it reinforces the theme of the book. That if we are to be a faithful witness, if we are to be effective in evangelism as a church, we must learn to devote ourselves to good works. Verse 14, that term, learn to devote, here's what it means. What does it mean, learn to devote? Write this down, very key. It means to practice diligently and consistently as a lifestyle. To practice good works consistently. What are good works? We're not talking about busyness. We're talking about God works, spirit-empowered works, with the opportunities that he gives in front of us to do so. And the reason, just keep reading verse 14, so that we would not be unfruitful. What is that? Unproductive unproductive in our witness for Christ, both to non-believers so that they would become aware of the reality of Christ in his people as, as God uses those good works by his power to draw others to himself as they see a life of distinction and sacrifice and love for them. But he also uses it for believers, good works towards other believers to care for them, to see them built up in Christ, encouraged in the faith and equipped for gospel ministry. You know, one of the things I was so blessed yesterday Perfect example of this. You know, there were, I don't know, eight or ten of us out helping one of the families in our church move. And there were a few of us in this moving truck in 30 degree heat, just literally sweating buckets so that the brim of your hat was actually, maybe it was just my hat, so that the brim of the hat was like sweating drops down, like the brim, because it was so saturated. And we're moving couches and tables and stuff. And it was amazing. There was a beautiful work of God going on in that place. And I just stood back and I just watched the body of Christ do its thing. This is what God calls us, being devoted diligently in 30 degree weather to help brothers and sisters move. And here Paul sums up the letter three ways. You say, what does a learned devotion look like? Here, he sums it all up. Three ways we are to be devoted to good works if we are to be faithful and fruitful in our witness to Christ. Ready? Number one is this. Diligent or learned devotion is relational. 
Learn devotion, relationally. Invest the time. Look at verse 12. Invest the time. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Invest the time, loved ones. Remember, Paul left Titus in Crete to establish the churches, but to not stay there permanently. He didn't want Titus to stay there. He says that he's going to send either Artemis or Tychicus. These were both close friends and ministry partners who Paul had confidence in. You better send someone you have confidence in if you're going into Crete. Right? So he's got confidence in Artemis and Tychicus to relieve Titus. And when they come, notice this, Titus was to do his best. What does that mean? Not delay. It's not like, oh, when I get around to it. No, no, no. Do your best. Don't delay in heading to Nicopolis to spend the winter there with Paul. Now, just so you know the sacrifice involved in this, here's a map of, do you have the map up here? I don't see it. Is it coming? Okay, never, there it is. Okay, perfect. So here's the reality. So Paul's there in Crete, or Titus is in Crete. Paul's up in Nicopolis, all right? South of the Adriatic Sea, nice warm, spending the winter in the nice warm south of Greece. Yeah, sounds real good, Paul. But here's the reality. That's 200 miles north. And it's not like, it's not like Titus could just hop on the TGV. He's got to walk it. Do your best to come to me. Just take a 200-mile hike, Titus. It's good. Good. Paul asking Titus to come. Why? To invest time with him to pray and seek the Lord and be mutually encouraged by each other's faith before Titus' next assignment in Dalmatia, which is another place in the Roman Empire. We talk, we, you can read about it in 2 Timothy. But Paul is bringing Titus in to encourage him, to refresh him, to pray with him, to stretch us before he sends him out again. Heading to Dalmatia. Dalmatia. So Question. Who has God put in front of you to invest time in? Just think. Who's he put right in front of you? You don't have to go necessarily on a 200-mile hike. Maybe take 20 steps across the street. Maybe after the service, see someone you don't know and just go. Like, who has God put in front of you? We live in a consumeristic culture of serve me, serve me, serve me, serve me. But devoted to good works turns that on its head. Are we investing the time? We live in a culture when it's supposed to be so much easier, microwaves and all this instant, you know, am I, did I just date myself? What do they call these things? Smart pops or whatever they're, oh boy, I don't know. Something going on now. Make, get your food in like 30 seconds and, and make things more efficient. But yet we're busier than ever. How often do we use the excuse, I'm just too busy? No, I can't invest in you. No, I can't stop for a word of prayer because I just gotta run. I just gotta, loved ones, are we, Being devoted to good works means being devoted relationally and investing the time. Devoting ourselves to good works means we are devoting our time and building relationships in Jesus' name. Secondly, learn devotion is not just relationally, it's materially. Meet the need. Meet the need. Look at 13 and 14. Do your best to spend Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing and let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. See, Paul now instructs Titus to send out two members of Titus's ministry team to their next assignment once the Cretan churches were put in order. Zenos, who was a Christian lawyer in Rome, we don't know much about him, the rest of scripture, and Apollos, who was the great gospel teacher and a close friend of Paul. So they're in, Titus, they're in Crete with Titus. He's like, send them out to their next journey. But Titus was to ensure that they were equipped. 
He's not sending them out empty-handed. They were equipped for their journey by having all their urgent material needs given to them. Money, food, provisions, clothes, whatever it was. Question, question. What needs are around you that you can step in to meet as a witness for Christ? What's the material need you can meet? Your neighbor suffering? Maybe he needs a meal? Maybe he needs their grass cut? Don't ever underestimate cutting grass, loved ones. Trust me, don't ever underestimate that. What needs are right around you? Again, it just flips this consumeristic, I'm the center of the universe attitude on its head. What are the needs? What are the good works that God has put right around you? Maybe financially for someone else, practically as acts of service in your neighborhoods, in your city, homes, classes. What about, what about down in the church? There's a beautiful need down the hall. There's 40 kids learning about the gospel right now. We need more people. Praise the Lord, he's growing it. Devoting ourselves to good works means we are devoting ourselves to meet the needs of others in Jesus' name. Lastly is this. Learn devotion is relationally, invest the time. Material, meet the need. And here, this has to underscore everything. Prayerfully, pray for God's grace. Look at verse 15. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith and grace be with you all. I love how Paul finishes this. Did you get it? Paul finishes the letter with a prayer of blessing. It's not some just mandatory, okay, see you later. It's a prayer of blessing over Titus and the Cretan churches. And notice his prayer that God would show his grace to the church. What's God's grace? His favor. His favor through his strength, his favor through his unity, his favor through his peace, his favor through his blessing, his favor through his power, his favor through his presence upon each of the good works they were called to to see the church built up and that through it, God's grace would draw others to himself through their good works, to salvation, to those who were unbelievers. Let's be clear. God's grace, loved ones, is the only thing that makes fruitfulness and faithfulness possible. That's it. It's his grace that gives us the humility it's his grace that allows us to have godly leadership. It's the grace that helps us to live on mission. It's the grace that allows us to proclaim in the power of the Holy Spirit doctrine, sound doctrine. It's his grace that gives us the strength to be ready and devoted to good works. It's his grace that saves. And remember, his grace has a name. What's his name? Jesus. The grace of God has appeared, bringing what? Salvation for all men. See, we cannot notice this. We, you and I, cannot be devoted to good works if we're not devoted to prayer. There are no good works. There's a lot of busyness, but we're talking about God works. If you're going to do a God work, you need the power of God. Only comes through. I love how Charles Bridges said this. Prayer is one half of our ministry, and it gives the other half its power and success. Non-believers, how does this look? Well, God, show me your saving grace to them through this work. Maybe it's helping out with flooding. God, show your saving grace and give me an opportunity to declare that for God so loved the world, he gave us his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Give me the opportunity for that, God, through your good. Or give me your grace for that. Save through that. And for other believers, God, show your grace through this work by building up your church. Build it up in unity. Meet the need. Invest the time to disciple the next generation. Loved ones, this church is filled with people who have so much to offer. You say, I don't have anything to offer. Not true. 
Not true. You have so much to offer. And there's good works that God has called his church to, to be a witness into this increasingly dark world. God, loved ones, will we step up to it? Or are we content to sit and let it pass by? To be devoted, to be a faithful witness for Christ in unity and fruitfulness for the glory of his name. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with us all. Let's pray. God, you've made it so clear. You've made it so clear what you call your church to be. You've given your church a beautiful blueprint. I thank you for the last nine weeks for walking us verse by verse, word by word through this beautiful yet so penetrating book. God, I pray right now there would not be a spirit of opposition to you in pride, but a spirit of humility to say, God, where do I need to invest my time relationally into someone else? Where can I disciple someone instead of just always expecting to be discipled? Where can I be giving to that material need that's there? Where can I pour into those people practically? Am I devoted to prayer? God, teach me to pray. Teach me to pray. Lord, I pray, I don't know what you have all in store for this church moving forward. But Father, I do pray that there would be on the altar of our praise, no higher name than the name of Jesus Christ. Not our reputations, not our sin, not our agendas. Christ in all, through all, and for all. In Jesus' name.